Borag Thong Earthlets. It's Conrad with a special message from Space Spinner 2000. It's your last chance to submit questions to our 2018 Year in Review and AMA episode. Please ask us anything about this show, Fox or myself personally, 2000 AD, or any other deep philosophical questions you're pondering, and we'll do our best to answer. You can submit them to us by using any of our social media, at Space Spinner 2K on Twitter, Space Spinner 2000 on Facebook or Instagram, on the 2080 forums, or by email to spacespinner2000 at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon, and thanks for listening to Space Spinner 2000. Splendig Verthrig! Borag Thong Earthlets! My name is Conrad, and this is the sixth episode of Space Spinner Reaction, the podcast where we try to make sense of the UK's own classic comic action three issues at a time. This issue will cover an action for May and June 1976, issues 16 through 18. This episode, Hookjaw is ready for his close up, Lefty is ready to score, Dredger is ready to quit, and the running man is ready to take a break. My buddy Jason, usually co hosts the show, can't make it this time, so I'm flying solo like a crazy action adventurer or something. But speaking of someone who never goes solo, because he's got his partner Breed, it's Story One Dredger. A writer for Dredger is Kelvin Gosnell. Spring 1973, a Concord prototype is taking off when some prospective buyers turn out to be terrorists from the Black Mole terrorist group. No, they've landed in Greenland and demanded two million pounds or the ice that it's landed on will melt and they'll all die. And I just like that they've sent this note and it's signed Black Mole terrorist group. Just so, you know, you got to be polite when you're doing international terrorism. That's obvious. Anyhow, someone's got to get this plane back, and I think I know who. Dredger! <laughs> he and Breed are headed in with a bunch of Royal Marines, the leader of which really hates our dude. They parachute in and then start going after the terrorists, but one squad gets hit by an ambush. Luckily, Dredger is there to toss one of the bad guys into a nearby frozen lake. Dredger and Breed sneak onto the jet and gun down the terrorists, free the captain of the plane, and blow up the baddies and escape, and everyone gets aboard the jet and flies away. It's good times. Dredger's pretty angry at this major guy because his recklessness just barging ahead cost the lives of the men that died in that ambush. Oh, man. Possibly because of this, Dredger is now resigning from DI-6. He's gotten a better offer elsewhere, he says. But, you know, in standard uh, spy fashion, he's got to do one last assignment. And this is funny to me because I think a spy quitting is literally like the, like the way that that show, The Prisoner, starts. It's a spy who tries to quit. And then, you know, instead of uh, letting him go, they he wakes up in the island and all that stuff. Um, anyhow, that not in this case, though. Dredger's got to do one last job, which is just to kidnap an air attaché, Charles Wilkins, for a few days. Just get him out of circulation while some spy stuff is happening. Uh, but this mission has to be very clean and very quiet with no bloodshed. It's very Darth Vader, shaking finger, no disintegrations. Uh, the boys have the attaché's uh, car towed and then offer him a ride, then pull their guns, of course. With the CIA on their tail, they hop through a train station and trick the spies into getting onto a train that leaves without them. 
Dredger takes out another CIA guy by slamming a car door in his face. And there's just a lot of fun, casual violence going on as these guys sort of make their escape from American agents. Dredger tries to stash the attache in an unused part of the London docks, but the attache fakes a heart attack and escapes. Dredger shoots to try to scare Wilkins, but accidentally hits him and kills him, even though he aimed to miss. It turns out that Breed is the one that made the shot, and now, with the murder on his head, Dredger will be forced to stay in DI-6. Man, these guys play rough. The spy system itself is almost as dirty as Dredger is. Uh, Next up, an American spy satellite spots some suspicious activity off the Yugoslav coast, but then goes blind. Someone sabotaged the satellite. Who can get it fixed? Dredger! He and Breed burst through a military installation and brace a boffin about jamming the satellite. He gets answers after threatening to blow off some pinky toes. Uh, and he and the uh, Boffin didn't know why. He just got 5,000 pounds to transmit something which turned off the satellite. They go to turn the satellite back on, but then they're attacked by snipers. Breed gets one, but Dredger's hit by another, or so it seems, because in fact he's playing possum. He shoots another of the snipers, sending him falling into some giant gears below, which is real awesome. Just dude grinding up in the gears, dying. A third man attacks Dredger. He hits him with a fire bucket full of water right next to a high-voltage machine. Excellent use. I love the... It feels so old school, I guess, before there were fire extinguishers everywhere. You just have a bucket of water places like to put out fires. Doesn't seem safe with giant high-voltage machines, but what's to be done, I suppose? The satellite is fixed by the Boffin, who then gets shot in the head by a passing CIA agent. Nah, I hate those guys, always swinging by, shooting witnesses in the face. Uncool. Next time, someone tries to kill Dredger with nerve gas. <laughs> you know, fun Dredger stuff as always. Just the good, good casual killing, man. And when the guy goes in the gears, that's pretty terrifying just because I'm, you know... I feel like years of video games have made me very afraid of dying by being ground up by gears, even though I don't feel like I live in a very gear-heavy like part of the world at this point in history. I don't know. Anyhow, speaking of my irrational fears and worries, uh, let's go to Story 2, Green's Grudge War. Uh, writer Jerry Finley Day, artist Massimo Ballardinelli. All right, Commando Boys. Green and Bold. Oh, man, they're fighting in World War II. Green's real jealous of Bold. And now they're planning to raid a dry dock in Nazi-controlled France. And we're all raring to go. They're heading out on an old French ship. And early on in the, in the move, Bold knocks Green down to hide their British uniforms from an oncoming German warship. When the boat keeps coming towards them, though, the commanders attack it. And Green takes a rope ladder down to fight. But Bold just straight up jumps on him. The ship's cleared, and once again, Bold gets the credit. Ooh, that Bold! Inside the dry dock, boys start fighting, and Bold has an idea. They'll take an old ship and drive it to the gates of the dock, blasting them open, just, you know, basically messing up the dry dock, essentially. Green likes the idea, and likes it so much, in fact, that he shoves Bold off the ship so he can do it himself. Green pilots the ship to the gates, coming under heavy German fire, and eventually succeeds, but then he sees the Brits coming out of the fog. They've all been captured by the German. 
Germans, the rest will be taken prisoner, but Green will go to the firing squad to be continued. And that's kind of rare. I don't know. I don't think Green and I don't think the Green's Grudge War has had a, a to be continued section yet. So this is kind of a fun one, multi-part story. Green's being taken away, but Bold pipes up, insulting Hitler and earning himself a date with the firing squad as well. Facing death, Green tries to confess his grudge to Bold, but Bold stops him as the Nazis have come to take Bold away to the firing squad. Moments later, they do the same for Green, but suddenly a group starts attacking the Gestapo HQ. That's all Green needs to start fighting back. He chokes out, he chokes a German to death with his blindfold, the one that they were going to cover his eyes with to be executed. It's awesome. Green sees the attackers. There are Maquis, or Ma, yeah. Makis, I don't know, uh, Maki terrorists. I'm just using the Star Trek pronunciation. One of them uh, reminds him of Bold, but he's too busy killing Nazis to worry about it too much. He even stops the car of a Gestapo officer trying to escape. He goes for revenge, but learns that Bold wasn't executed. Instead, he got free when the Maki attacked, and now he's saving Green's life from that SS officer. It turns out the whole raid... On the dry dock was a diversion till the Maquis do a ton of strikes along the French coast. The boys head back to England. The Maquis leader gives Green a letter of commendation about Bold to give to officers. But as the boys rejoin the rest of the company, Green burns the note because no one gets glory but him. Whoa! At the base, the commandos have been issued cool new weapons, including a Colt automatic pistols. Nice! Bold tries it out and shoots well. Sorry. Green tries it out and shoots well, but Bold shoots the same, but with one hand. Woo. The crew is impressed, except for a U.S. Ranger there for training, who's also not impressed by Bold. And Green's like, ooh, maybe I found a, a, a comrade in arms. Later in the village, in the village pub, Green manages to start a fight between the Ranger and Bold. That night at, at that night at the barracks, it's, we learn it's time for a raid. Both Bold and the Ranger are looking pretty stiff as they prep to go out. The squad is headed for a German radar station, and Green is now kind of worried if Bold is actually okay. They team up during the raid and clear out one building after another. At the radar house, though, Bold goes in first in case there's a sniper, and there is! He's hit! Green tries to go for cover when Bold suddenly pops up and hits the sniper with his Colt pistol. But how?! It turns out that he won a flak jacket off that U.S. Ranger he beat in a fight last night, and he was moving stiffly because of the weight of the bulletproof waistcoat. Womp womp. Next time! Bold on a special mission, and Green goes along too. Whoa. <laughs> just good. Good. Again, more, more just fun jealousy action here, I guess. <laughs> you know. I thought it was kind of interesting, the possibility of a ranger or someone else sort of not liking Green along or not, or not liking Bold along with Green. I feel like he could like having a friend in hate could be kind of fun. But, you know, it's fine to not sort of go along with that. Also, really misrepresenting how not hurt you get when you're shot when you're wearing a bulletproof vest from what I've heard. But, you know, why get into it that uh, that that deeply? Right. Anyhow, speaking of things that might not be entirely scientifically accurate. No. Let me do that again. Speaking of getting hit, but then getting back up because you got crazy perseverance, it's story three, Blackjack. Blackjack Baron is fighting Kenny Norman, and he's he's hitting him hard, but he's got to win soon because his eyes are in trouble. 
Blackjack's beating Norman around the world because he fights shown all over America and on closed-circuit TV links in British cinemas, which is what they did before they had pay-per-view, I guess. He's like, he went to the movie theater to watch the fight. Norman keeps go- keeps going down and coming back up, but Blackjack's eyes are starting to blur. In round three, Jack is leaving himself open and starting to take some heavy blows from Norman because he can't use his speed to avoid the damage. Norman, however, goes for a haymaker, which Baron has been training for. He dodges under it and comes up with a vicious uppercut. And then another. Norman stumbles, goes down, and Blackjack wins. His eyes are worse and worse, but there's only one fight left for the championship. (laughs) On a new show, David Cronkite, with a bunch of K's instead of C's, I guess, is interviewing the champ of the world, Malcolm Dali. Yeah, 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 Malcolm Dali, Muhammad Ali. I see how it's going. Uh, Dali talks a, in a sort of phonetic African-American dialect, proceeds to cut a rhyme using a blackjack-style ventriloquist dummy about it, which is pretty crazy. Uh, top line, in the rings I shilly-shally, ain't fit to lick the boots of Malcolm Dali. Ooh. Blackjack is... Uh, or Blackjack has to fight fire with fire to get Dali to make a match, so he has Solly bring, him, uh, bring in the only three guys to have beaten Dali before and alerts the media that he's organizing a big birthday party for Dali. <laughs> and on the uh, on the day of a big on, uh, sorry on the day there's a big crowd a party with over a hundred can- on the day there's a big crowd a cake with over a hundred candles because they had to guess how many to use or saying that he's old. And he unveil and Blackjack unveils the biggest surprise of boxing ring, where Blackjack proceeds to beat down the three dudes that beat Dolly. <laughs> he calls the champ out, and it'll be on soon. Book a hospital bed. Alright, final issue for Blackjack. We're back in London, because apparently Jack gave up a big part of the fight purse to have the fight in Wembley Stadium. Back home in England, Jack gets a special heat treatment for his eyes, but that won't last long. The fighters head out to the ring. We're going to get it on. Dali says, uh, claims he'll win by round five and we're underway. Jack is way faster than Dali, who they're now drawing as pretty old in comparison to Baron. Like, I feel like earlier in the thing he looked about his age, but now he's starting to get, like, look haggard and stuff. It's going okay when suddenly Dali goes for a headbutt. He must know something about Jack's eyes. Jack goes goes down hard. He's hammering away at Dolly. The champ goes down. He gets up at eight, but then he goes down again, hoping for the bell. Jack seems to have won when a jerk in the crowd throws a bottle at Dolly. And instead, it smacks right into Jack's face. His eyes are completely gone, thanks to his own fans. Next time, is it the end for Black Jack? <laughs> All right. We're getting to the end of this part of Blackjack. I believe after the initial boxing story ends, it starts being about Kung Fu, I guess. I'm not sure if he'll be blind to doing Kung Fu. I'm interested to see what's going to happen, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, man. And speaking of sports that are way more violent than you might expect them to be, it's Story 4 Death Game 1999. Uh, writer Tom Tully, artist, cost of the Gioletti Agency. So, distant future, 1999, where unjustly convicted football star Joe Taggart has agreed to play the deadly game of spinball because he's recognized one of his old buddies, Eddie Gorman, among the players. He wants to play so we can get out of prison, and he's going to rebuild the team from the ground up because he's got a, been given a free hand to do so. They start recording, 
or recruiting, I should say. And Joe likes the, the looks of Yo-Yo Divine, who's in for 30 years for killing his landlord. Divine doesn't want to fight or be violent, at least until Joe uh, Joe Three Stooges him and then calls him Yella. Oh. Uh, Yo-Yo starts swinging and even knocks out a guard that tries to break it up. For beating up a guard, though, he'll get life, so he might as well play spinball if he wants to be free ever. Uh, Taggart is taking a note from... or. Sorry, Joe Taggart's taking a note from Dredger here. It's a dirty job, so he's got to play dirty. Then, it's time for some hard training. We learn that their next opponents will be from the Fort Lash Penitentiary. The Fort Lash Fiends! They're out for vengeance, though. The game is getting started, and it looks like Joe's own team hates him just as much as the Fiends. So, the Fiends try to rile up the Carson City Boys by calling them Yeller, and it works! The rest of the team doesn't respect Taggart's football legacy, so a rogue team member rolls out to try to fight the fiends and goes flying into one of the fiends' outer pins and gets electrified. He fries to death. A hard throw by the fiends sends the super fast spin ball flying through the face of another teammate as Taggart grabs the ball and starts scoring points. Another teammate gets blindsided, and the fiends put their skates on him, and a savage brawl breaks out. After it's broken up, though, Taggart addresses the team. We gotta play together if we wanna win. And, hey, I'm the only guy that scored points without any injury, so you guys should listen to me. And it seems pretty convincing. Of course, some of the team thinks that he hasn't been injured yet because he's yellow, and Taggart decides to prove that notion wrong as they head back onto the ice, charging straight at the 100-mile-an-hour ball. A lot of calling people yellow in Death Ball this, this episode, I'm seeing. Um, or Death Game, I should say. So, I guess, like, the motorcycles that they have for spin ball have these scoops in the front to pick up the ball uh, for the game, and then cannons that fire it out too, because that's what Taggart does here, <laughs> quickly scoring a whole bunch of points and inspiring his team. Yo-Yo Divine comes out early and scores some more points, but then gets knocked off his bike. Taggart has to drag him to safety on his face. <laughs> At halftime, the killers only have have, have only scored uh, 120 points when the fiends sh- with a sh- with the f- which the fiends should be able to pick up pretty easily. Warden smiles, yells at Taggart for this, and Taggart just gets up in his face in response. This draws a guard who clubs Taggart from behind, and he's knocked out. And that was the, their only hope to win the game. <laughs> now the kill the. Uh, the, the killers are on defense. They're bruised, bloodied, and a man down. Joe's old friend, Eddie, freaks out, hoping it won't be killed. Next time, what's the revival chair? Joe finds out. <laughs> it's interesting to see the game of spinball this week. Like, we're really getting in with, like, sort of how it is. Like, pinball with ice skates and motorcycles, which seems complicated for sure. But, you know, they're sort of pinging the ball around. It's interesting because in other games that have had death sport elements, I guess, or some of them at least, like there's also been points for killing people. Like if you someone dies, you get a bonus point or something like that. And they don't have that here. It's just based on the like actual score you get. So it seems like you could run up the score and not focus on killing people. But man, killing people is just so fun. That's what you want to focus on, I guess. <laughs> anyway... Exciting spinball action, less exciting as always. It's time for Non Stories, Covers, Editorial, Action Man, and Money Man.
Issue 16, this cover is plugging extras in the comic this week. There's a game called Invasion and the start of a giant hookjaws poster. Uh, Steve McManus talks of the new poster. Letters includes kids sending in their own comics, an action poem, dads reading comics, and requests for a modeling page, which I like as a, uh, as a big Warhammer dude, whatever. Mid-issue, there's a bunch, there's a part of a big full-color poster. It looks like the upper uh, left of the poster. It's a gruesome scene of sharks eating dudes. There's blood everywhere. Mid-prog is a full-page ad for a t-shirt kit from Curly Whirly Bubblegum with these weird-looking muscle dudes on a beach. I don't know. It's real crazy. Towards the end of the comic, though, there's rules for a game called Invasion. Bill Savage sadly not involved. Instead, you and a buddy have to take this gridded map you mark a bunch of different attack and defense units, and it's like a, a more complicated version of Battleship. That's what I'm trying to say. It is. <laughs> Prog 17 on the cover. Money Man is back for summer cash releases. This time you'll find him in Hailing Island in Hampshire, okay? Mid-issue, there's another part of the Hookjaw posters. Dude getting, dude's getting real shark bit. There's also a directory of June sports in England, including rally cars, tennis, hockey, cricket, and uh, water sports. Ah, it was a different time. <laughs> Issue 18 looks like Steve McManus is headed out for vacation for a few weeks. Meanwhile, Money Man is headed to Weston Supermare to give out more money. There are letters correcting some dates for Hookjaw, a complicated joke about a clock, Oh, and, uh, an old wooden bomb joke, like where, you know, they build an airfield out of wood and the Germans drop a wooden bomb on it, basically. And uh, ways to deal with a snoring brother. Mid-issue, there are no all questions, a list of winners from Money Man events, which I think is interesting, and a brief mention of a new story in action coming called Hell's Highway. In the middle of the issue, it's the big glamour shot picture of Hookjaw for the poster. He's got at least two dudes in his mouth at once. And then this issue ends with some sports tips, this time for swimming different strokes, like backstroke, crawl, etc. And man, speaking of the subject of that poster himself, buddy, it's Story 5, Hookjaw. Uh, writer Pat Mills, artist Roman Sola. The kid Mason saved last issue from Hookjaw has gone mad, so he won't corroborate Mason's story about the killer shark and owner of the island we're currently on, Dr. Gelder, wards Mason to keep his mouth shut. Just standard, like, capitalist Earth's doomsayer stuff you've seen it a thousand times in various monster movies. There's a French guy, Laval, who's doing some fancy water skiing stuff behind a motorboat, which awakens Hookjaw! The shark comes up behind Laval and actually starts gaining on him because the motorboat's not going fast enough, so they speed up the boat to dangerous speeds. In terror, Laval lets go of the rope and he and uh, Hookjaw snaps Laval's air straight off. He snaps him up straight up. He eats him. Mason tries to ram the beast, but it's no good. And the other people in the boat draw guns and make him head back to shore. Dr. Gelder orders the shark killed that night. Hookjaw's trapped inside the reef and trailing blood behind him, so it's easy to track. Mason has enlisted the natives to help him and they beat the water in canoes to force Hookjaw to swim to the shallows where he has to st where he starts floundering. We've got him! Rick Mason is throwing spears at the beached Hookjaw as the natives net him in place. Things are looking bad for our hero, the shark, as he's hit in the, hit in the jaws and he starts to bleed out. But then, 
That blood, in turn, calls sharks from miles around, who stream over the reef at high tide, and are suddenly among the hunters. Humans are getting eaten like crazy as Hookjaw starts lashing out. Rick tries to finish off Hookjaw, but it's no good. The mighty shark tries to escape as Rick is tossed aside, and suddenly the lesser sharks try to eat Hookjaw, but he's got a weapon that can't be beat. The Hook! Hookjaw escapes the melee and swims to the bottom of the lagoon to safety. Soon, Dr. Gelder arrives, hoping to see the source for his problem finished, but instead, Hookjaw is still alive, and now his lagoon is infested with a hundred more sharks. It's just a big, reef-protected, like, soup bowl of sharks at this point. Dr. Gelder, he's tired of this shark business and gives Rick a dozen cans of the strongest shark repellent known to man to make the lagoon safe for swimming because there's a film crew coming out for a chocolate bar and they're coming in soon. And we got to film it out in the water. So get these sharks out of here. One of the natives named Sharky whispers to Rick about a plan to kill Hookjaw, but Rick won't listen because he's too tired. You know, he's like, he, he feels burned from that uh, paddle incident earlier, so now he's just like gonna do it his way. Rick spreads the repellent around, and it does seem to scare off the sharks. The chocolate bar people start filming, and they've gotta all do it, do it all in one take. It, there's a, there's a sexy commercial lady on sort of the side of a raft kicking the water, and the vibrations attract Hookjaw like he's a dang sandworm in the deserts of Arrakis. He blasts through the repellent and just starts smashing up the place, eating everybody in sight. Rick manages to save the lady and says that 90% of shark, vac- are, of shark victims are male, implying that they pre- prefer the flesh of dudes, which I'm doubtful. I think that might just be one of those uh, like selected group things where men are more likely to be willing to swim in shark-infested waters, I guess. like That seems more reasonable to me. <laughs> Um, anyhow, Dr. Gelder comes over, he's gonna, and basically says his piece, kill every shark in the lagoon or be killed by them. Rick agrees to hear Sharky's plan, and next time on Hookjaw, can Hookjaw be killed by a voodoo ritual? Ooh, I hope so, that sounds pretty awesome. Man. Good Hookjaw, good, good intrigue and shark hunting in Hookjaw this week. Um, (laughs) he just, he eats that whole boat. That the commercial filming's on, man. It's real awesome. <laughs> real good. Always appreciate uh, Hookjaw. Always appreciate when there's a lot of other sharks helping Hookjaw out. It's one of those things that really reminds me of, like, the end of the first Flesh story in 2000 AD, where all the different dinosaurs come and, like, hang out to take out the, uh, the, the central, like, trans-time base, you know? I love the idea that all these sharks of all these different species and stuff have all shown up to help Hookjaw and maybe eat Hookjaw, but definitely these humans. Absolutely. And speaking of humans that I don't know if I'd mind too much if they were eaten by a shark, it's Story 6, Hellman of the Africa Corps. Nah, I'm okay with Hellman, I guess. I mean, I guess I don't want to be eaten by a shark, but still, whatever. And yeah, uh, writer Jerry Findlay Day, artist Mike Dory. Uh, Hellman, of course, Kurt Hellman, he's uh, the leader of a tank of uh, Tiger Tanks, or at least he was, but things are in a rough spot, because after El Alamein, Major Kurt Hellman is on the run from the Brits with a single panzer when he gets a call from Rommel himself. He needs to take command of a sector and try to hold it, but it's mostly Italians with light tanks, scout cars, and artillery, the only heavy weapon, a self-propelled gun that's now lost in no man's land. 
the ally, the allies start to attack, and it's mostly hard-bitten South African troops, so you gotta like watch out for them. To rally his troops, Hellman charges forward through smoke shells and takes down some Springbok tanks that runs. Though his panzer is nearly burned out before he bails, he sends a message over British radio in English that he bets the Italians are all cowards. He's previously ordered the Italians to listen on British wavelengths, FYI. Hellman and the crew bail out and are picked up by the Italians, now fighting hard because they feel like the Brits have insulted them and called them cowards and they've got their, like, Latin pride or something. <laughs> their hard fighting makes the South Africans think that there's a German ambush up ahead and they break off the assault. They have won today, but unless they can get more t- more panzers, they're lost in the long term. Over the next couple days, instead of panzers, though, they get goddamn SS officer Kastner. A constant thorn in Hellman's side, of course. Hellman's about to brain him with a shovel when a call comes into Rommel. They are to secure the coastal road to Libya. Hellman goes with Kastner in a red shirt to scout around, only to find that the Tommies have set up a roadblock and they get spotted. A British and a Sikh soldier go to investigate, but Hellman gets the drop on him, using his shovel to blind one and knock out the other. The team returns to their base, where Hellman gets an idea. They strap panzer armor onto some trucks and then ride out to burst through the roadblock. It's a big scene as they blast through, killing enemy soldiers as they go. The Sikh soldier from the previous assault tries to take down Helmet with a sharp quite from his turban, sort of a flowing di- throwing disc, but an Italian soldier takes the hit instead. A gallant Italian! Only one of the trucks has made it through, and even worse, it seems Kastner has survived yet again. Ooh, that Kastner! Hellman and the remnants of Africa Corps have been running for weeks, part of a big convoy. Kastner is getting jumpy as suddenly a squadron of British fighters swoop in. Thinking fast, Hellman jumps on an 88 artillery piece and quickly gets it shooting, taking down the planes. The squadron veers away as Rommel shows up to congratulate Hellman, and the marshal takes the major aside to explain that enemy troops have arrived to their west to try to snare them, and Hellman quickly puts it together. Uh, sorry, he quickly puts together a way to stop them in Tunisia. Hellman's sent to take control of the mountain passes there. All he has to do, all he has to do it though, are a few trucks and an 88 gun, but he'll do his best. Hellman manages to pick up some Panzer Grenadiers as he goes, and they all arrive at Carrying Pass, a fictional pass in uh, Tunisia. When they're there, they find a French fort, and Kastner assumes they'll still be loyal to uh, the German side and the and, and the Vichy regime. But Hellman's skeptical and is right, as it's recently been taken over by free Frenchmen, and where they've got three Sherman tanks with them. The tanks open fire, but Hellman has the 88 draw a bead on them and quickly takes out all three. Unfortunately, the garrison in this during this fight, the garrison has closed its gates, and the Germans are out of shells with a big gun. What can they do? Hellman knocks the blocks from the wheels of the 88. It goes rolling down the hill, bursting through the gates by sheer force of gravity. The French surrender, but the Americans are on their way, and Hellman still badly needs reinforcements. Next time, when is Hellman going to get even with Kastner? Interesting stuff. I'm, I'm interested to see Kastner sort of show up again. You know, we, 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 we last saw him escaping and basically screwing Hellman in the middle of a minefield. So I guess he's still out for blood for that. It's really kind of 
it is kind of fun seeing the differences, how the tone in this story has changed when it was Hammer Force and it was Hellman sort of riding high on the Blitzkrieg and stuff. And now it's uh, Africa Corps and they've lost and they're like on the run and stuff like that. Interesting sets of highs and lows. I guess you can kind of have these like we've won small victories, but it's a lo- it's a longer fight when you have a, you know, the, the hero be sort of a bad guy or the guy that loses like the way Hellman is, you know, it's an interesting idea, I guess. I'm I'm liking Hellman a lot more now that he's sort of losing, I guess, as opposed to when I'm like, yeah, we are victorious Germans. Like, that's kind of rough stuff. You know what I mean? Exactly. All right. And speaking of rough stuff, let's get down and dirty with Story 7. Look out for Lefty. Uh, writer Tom Tully, artist Barry Mitchell, and Tony Harding. Uh, Kenny Lefty uh, uh, Lampton has beat his rival Sid Smythe, uh, or sorry, has bet his rival Sid Smythe that he can score three goals before the end of the game they're currently playing. It's in the second half. He believes that Sid stole 10 pounds from his grandfather's uh, junk shop and he's got revenge in any hour soccer time. Lefty scores quickly and Sid decides to make it harder, just basically playing a possession game to keep the balls the ball away from both their opponents and Lefty, but one of his friends gets bored with this and passes the ball to Lefty, who hits a shot from midfield when the goalie isn't looking. A cheeky goal. Uh, St. Bart's pissed that they're the object of bets from the other side. Now go hard against Lefty and he earns a free kick. He boots it with incredible power, hitting the crossbar so hard that it breaks the goal. And with that, it's full time and Lefty has won the bet. Lefty gets Sid to cough up the dough eventually, but when Sid denies he stole it from Granddad's shop, Lefty's new girl Angie shows up and says that Brian Moggs did it. Um, On info from Smythe. Lefty goes to investigate and finds Moggs and his buddies smoking behind the school. After some soccer-based fighting and some kicks from Angie, they beat up the baddies and destroy the 20 or so packs of cigarettes that they've clearly just bought with the stolen money. Uh, Moggs swears revenge, but Lefty ain't worried. Let's go to the movies, babe. <laughs> Later, Lefty barely dodges a brick thrown by Moggs. who threatens that his brother Badger is going to come out for revenge. Lefty isn't worried, though, and instead goes to meet with Angie's dad. Get his application for the Wigford, Ro- Wigford, Wigford Rovers processed. <laughs> Lefty will be out of school soon and gets offered to be a sub in an upcoming tournament, which is pretty cool. Back at the junk shop, Lefty celebrates his success, only to find that his grandfather has bought a gross of giant carnival masks and 500 rejected plastic garden gnomes, and it only cost him 20 pounds, 10 up front. The shop is full of junk no one wants, and the guy Granted bought it from won't take no for an answer for the rest of the money. So the next morning, Lefty has no choice but to try to sell all the junk, but no one's buying, and he realizes he's running late for the tournament. Even worse, he forgot about his date with Angie that night, and she's pretty pissed. It looks like a couple team members are down with the flu also, so Lefty has to go in and play. But as he does, he recognizes one of the players of the opponent's side, the, the, uh, the, the Chagford old boys. Because they've all done time in juvie, including this guy, Badger Moggs, who's out for revenge. Badger and Lefty talk trash as Angie and her dad investigate the cart that Lefty brought to the game full of guard gnomes and giant masks. He's making a real bad first impression. At the game, Lefty tries to play away from Badger, but all the team have Badger's back, and one of the toughs attacks Lefty. Luckily, games does still have rules, so the Rovers get a free kick for it. Lefty takes it, hitting the dude so hard that he goes out, 
and then another teammate is able to score on the rebound. All the uh, all Chagford are trying to take out Lefty, but he's way too quick for them, scoring a goal himself. The baddies are playing rough again while the ref is distracted. Lefty takes a hard kick to the ankle and goes down. He knows he has to impress Angie's dad to stay on the team, but at this point, he'll be lucky just to finish the game walking. Next time, will the magic spray help Lefty? And I thought the magic spray was mostly there for when people were faking injuries and just giving it as an excuse for why it looks like someone tapped you and you went down like you were hit by a sniper rifle, but suddenly you're back up and able to play. It's because you got hit by the spray and the spray uh, healed all your fake injuries. But I admit I'm sort of a casual uh, soccer slash football watcher, so I'm ready to be um, explained away. Anyway, speaking of running out of time, it's Story 8, The Running Man. Uh, writer Steve McManus, artist Lalia. Mike Carter, on the run from the law and the mafia, is in the middle of a car chase with axe-wielding mob assassin Crazy Luigi. Oh, that's just a fun way to start. Mike eventually pulls over, and when Luigi goes to strike, Mike parries the blow with a tire iron. It breaks Luigi's axe and drives Luigi insane. Well, more insane, I guess. He's sort of holding, cradling the dead body of his axe, saying that he'll fix it somehow. Mike, drove, Mike drives off and later that day is exhausted as all the cars around him are driving really fast. He's found his way into the Cannonball Dash, basically an illegal race from New York to San Francisco, as seen in various like uh, Burt Reynolds movies, like various Cannonball Run movies, I guess. Mike can't get arrested as the cops sort of uh, go to arrest everybody driving this area, so he goes to drive with the rest of the uh, of the racers. But suddenly he's on a swing bridge that's going up. There's no way he can make it. Mike tries to turn around, but the cops are hot on his tail. Uh, there's only one thing to do, which is jump the bridge. And like it says, a swing bridge. But it's one of those bridges that sort of go up and down to allow ships to pass and stuff. Uh, there's only one thing to do, though. So Mike goes to jump the bridge in reverse. He makes it, which I don't think you can do. I'm pretty sure cars only go like at most like 20 miles an hour in reverse. I don't think you can do a full jump in there. But again, we're, we're doing this. <laughs> Mike drives on, but there's a roadblock ahead at the Golden Gate Bridge, or what I assume is the Golden Gate Bridge. Mike gets out of his car and climbs the superstructure of the bridge to escape the cops, losing them in the lightning fog of San Francisco. The cops know he's up there. They fire blindly, and a ricochet hits Mike, and he loses his grip. He's falling. Hey, don't uh, try to climb or jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, guys. Like, Mike Carter survives, but you will die. Carter falls from the bridge and hits the water, but is quickly picked up by a nearby boat, so he's okay, or he would be, but the guys who picked him up are the very mob dudes that put Vito Scarlatti's face on him in the first place. They were out here dumping a body from a mob hit. Jeez. They hit the shore and prepare to take Mike to Vito when Mike fights back, tossing one of the hoods into a boiling lobster pot. He uses his running skills to get away and heads to Franco's place on Market Street to confront Vito. It turns out to be a barber shop, though it's probably a front for other stuff. And we find this out as Mike attacks the barber and threatens him with a straight razor. And indeed, there is a secret door here in the barber shop. Mike opens the door and sneaks up on Vito as he's carrying out a loan sharking operation. Mike bursts in and gets the drop, but Vito has a gun on his desk. He shoots Mike in the leg, in the leg, and pistol whips him. 
and prepares to shoot Mike to death so he can finally fake his own death and avoid punishment from all those cops he's killed. You know, this basic opening plot of the story here. Anyhow, the long sleep is all yours. Vito has Carter dead to rights and is about to shoot him when suddenly Crazy Luigi bursts in. Luckily, Crazy Luigi is at this point pretty crazy, and Mike manages to trick him into killing Vito instead. No! Unfortunately, Luigi's now pretty disgruntled with this whole situation and decides to kill who he thinks is Vito, but is actually Mike as well. Oh, it's one of these, like, uh, two gentlemen of Verona kind of situations, but with, uh, you know, axe-wielding gangsters. (laughs) But before Luigi can strike, the cops burst in. Mike explains the situation, but finding out that, um, sorry, Mike explains the situation, but finding out that he killed the wrong man sends Luigi into a rage. Mike asks the cops not to shoot him because Luigi can prove Mike's innocence. He breaks free and follows, Lu- um, and sorry, and Mike follows Luigi aboard a trolley car. But when Luigi sees him, he tries to jump to one going the opposite direction and gets squashed between them. Mike is arrested, but is able to tell his whole story, which he hadn't been able to do because the cops were always trying to kill him. And this time they listen and take the time to check Mike's fingerprints for Speedos, and he's quickly cleared. Mike is also given a ticket back to England, where he hopes to be safe from the grip of Vito's father. The end of the running man! You know, you'd think that he could have done that when he was, when he, like, saved that sheriff from those Satan worshippers in, like, like, New Mexico? Like, that thing, that, then things were pretty calm, and he could have, like, explained his story and gotten his fingerprints checked, right? Nah, it doesn't matter. This was fun. Love this Running Man story. Real good uh, ender, because the cliffhangers really um, kept you on the hook for the next issue of action, if you ask me. But with that, oh man, I've managed to finish action issues 16 through 18. Oh man, you know, I'm not a huge fan of solo podcasting, but I hope you were able to handle it at least a little bit. (laughs) Um, For my top and bottom stories for this month i'm gonna say hmm it's tough because usually there's someone who can who's who gives their top and bottom stories while i think about what mine are but i'm gonna say for my top i'm gonna say running man i really like this ending big uh shootout gunfight on the streets of san francisco was a ton of fun just like you know as someone who's sort of who is from san francisco i like when there's the little little touches of of san francisco things they aren't really right but just you know having it be on market street that is a big street in san francisco um you know fight between trolley cars i don't think you'd actually die if you got smashed between two the two of them but it's still a fun a concept so yeah and just you know it's always fun when these story it's it's neat to see the end of these stories just because you get so used to the serial banging on that actually getting to the conclusion is kind of fun i don't know um yeah so running man for my top for my bottom ooh it's tough there were a lot of good stuff there's a lot of good stuff in these issues this is really action firing on all cylinders at this point um i might say dredger which is sacrilege but i didn't really like the story of um of dredger quitting and then breed framing him for murder like i guess it shows that like all these spies are in the dirt are you know playing a dirty game and stuff but i also kind of like breed kind of being a little bit more pure than dredger you know it's sort of it's tough to to credit breed saying like oh that dredger's dirty he doesn't play by the rules when breed has in fact killed someone just to keep dredger from quitting the job you know that sort of seems a little hypocritical i guess 
Um, otherwise, real good stuff, man. I'm really excited about a bunch of these stories and getting in there. I'm really interested in Lucky for in uh, Lookout for Lefty, especially like that story. See, this seems like a real combination of sports action and humor that I really want to see more of for sure. I want to see more of all of this, man. It's all good. It's all fun. I'm very interested in this new thrill we've got coming up next um, uh, called Hell's Highway. I think that could be, I know, I don't know. It's got a big, a picture big rig in it. Like, I'm, I'm willing to check it out. I don't know. Like, you know, don't threaten me with a good time when it comes to thrill power, I suppose, even if it's, of course, 1976 proto thrill power. <laughs> anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. Feel free to contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages on Twitter at spacespinner2k. For everything else, look up Space Spinner 2000 and we should be there. You can find Space Spinner 2000 everywhere you do your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, whatever. Look us up, man. We're ready to entertain you. And then come back next time as the grudge war continues. There's robots in the death game. Hellman fights Americans. Lefty teams up with Sid. Dredger meets a lady spy. We'll head out on Hell's Highway. And Blackjack learns Kung Fu. Until then, I'm Conrad, and I'm also Space Spinner Reaction. Splendid with me. Get me hands on your land. <laughs>